Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, good evening. Uh, first, before we begin, I'd like to say thank you to everybody here at the church for their support uh, through my getting over whatever it was that I had. Um, we'll, um, I ask for your continued prayers. And with regards to this study, um, if you don't have them already, the notes are available for you online. Um, this is going to be a, a shorter study, I think, for this evening, but a very meaningful one. We're going to be taking a look at prophetic imagery. This chapter that we're going to look at, it's going to be chapter 4, and it details the throne room of God. And there are all kinds of things happening, and we need to, to take special care to look at colors, to look at actions, to look at placement. We need to be very careful about what John observes and how he records what he records. Because just as though uh, things that he's trying to describe physically may, may not make much sense uh, from an architectural standpoint, they should in a prophetic standpoint. In other words, uh, the way that God is presented, the scene is not something that you could draw, even though people have tried. I think that one of the reasons that God commands us not to make a graven image of things in heaven is because there's no way we could with any degree of accuracy. As we'll see in just a second, when even with what John describes, we're talking about a human being with a finite intellect being pulled from the natural world in which we live into the supernatural throne room of God. And trying to put pen to paper and describe that is is a hard task. I'd say that even with the superintendence of the Holy Spirit of God, the things that he was being exposed to were things that God was trying to use, I believe, to get a point across. And not, naturally, not, not necessarily the physical descriptors so much as what they represent. What do the colors mean? to the prophetic Jewish mindset. What do the, the structures mean? What, does the, what do the symbols mean? What do the words that are being spoken mean? So again, before we go into the Word of God, we always want to do that from a season of prayer. So if you'll bow your hearts with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for being a God of comfort and for being a God who has cared about us and loved us so much that you gave us this this message of hope, Lord, that while we enter into its uh, pages, we ask that you would open our minds not to our preconceptions, but to your spirit and to the words that the apostle has penned for us. So help us to look at these with fresh eyes. Help us to see things with your truth and help, to, to help us to live up to the title of this book, the unveiling, the revealing of your Son. For these blessings, for your mercy, 
for your love. We come to you through the matchless name of Christ. And for the sake of whose everlasting kingdom we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. So a couple of things I want to remind you of. Again, I thank Elbert for jumping in for me yesterday with Bible study. Uh, but just by quick way of review, Acts 17.11. This is Luke's way of telling you not to believe anything that Jason Robbins tells you. I always use this as a disclaimer because it tells of the Apostle Paul's uh, missionary activities through Europe. But in these pages, Luke writes that the Berean Christians, the, the soon-to-be Berean church, was more noble in spirit than those in Thessalonica in that they not only received the word with all readiness of mind, but they also searched the scriptures daily to prove what Paul had said was so. Meaning that they didn't just take for granted because of his amazing preaching and his intellect, the things that he was preaching was, was necessarily always truth, but they went into the scriptures themselves individually to ask questions, to find answers. And I, I hope, while I am going to try to explain to you what I believe and why I believe it, my, my real goal in this set of studies is for you, one, to develop an awe and, and a sense of awe and wonder to the complexity and to the magnificence of the Word of God. Forty different authors, 4,000 years of history, one message, integrated message, one that gives evidence to the fact that it was originally authored outside the confines of time, from eternity into your hands, through the provision, the superintendence, and the breath of the Holy Spirit of God. But I also hope that you develop the capacity to ask questions, to be curious, to delve deeply into your Bible helps, to delve deeply into your study guides, to do your own homework so that not only do you become acquainted with what the Scripture says, but how we can apply it. And that in those questions, as you find answers, your faith will become deeper. Ask questions. And for those of you online, post comments. If there's anything that doesn't make sense or something that strikes you, that you believe the Holy Spirit is calling to your attention, put it up there. And for you in the congregation, raise your hand so that we can take advantage of that. And if there is something that confuses you, I challenge you to do one more thing. Rejoice. Because if it appears confusing on the outset, if you do your homework about it, I guarantee you, you will find a blessing on top of an answer. So anyway, getting back into uh, Revelation. Revelation, of course, Apocalypsis is the actual title of the book, which literally means the unveiling, the revealing. The revealing of what? Christ. And Christ gives us the outline of the book itself in uh, Chapter 1, verse 19, write down what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place after these things. Meditata, these things that must happen later. So we are in that third section, starting with chapter 4, where we're talking about the consummation of all things. But I want you to not only, as, as we continue this study, prayerfully consider this verse 2 from chapter 1. 
Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. And I want you to understand how the Apostle John identifies this book. He doesn't say, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this allegory or the ones of this collection of symbolic teachings. He identifies his own writings as prophecy. And he does that twice. Not only that, but through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit of God, this is the only book of the Bible, as I've said before, that has the audacity, the chutzpah, the gall, if you will, to say, of all the books, read me, I'm special. Because God himself promises a special blessing to the students of this book. One of the things that we talked about the last time we were gathered together was prophecy and what prophecy means and how it comes to us. And there was still a bit of confusion, so I want to, to illustrate this a la C.S. Lewis. One of the ways that he kind of identified our part to play in the kingdom of God was by describing an egg, whereby the yolk of the egg is the natural world, uh, the blue dot on your screen right now, in which we live, and the supernatural, which is the much greater white of the egg. And I've tried to depict that here for you as kind of to try to explain uh, what a lot of people don't seem to get about God versus us. We live in the natural universe. We are restricted because of this side of creation that God has produced. We are restricted by the substance of the universe, meaning matter and energy. We are restricted by the three-dimensional uh, states of, of matter, or excuse me, excuse me, the three uh, spatial dimensions of substance, meaning height, width, and depth. We are restricted by linear time. We only see what is right in front of us, right in the present. We cannot look back except with the chemical storage that is our memory, and we certainly cannot look forward except by faith. Not to say that we ourselves, if we have faith, will all be prophets, but that we, if we have faith, that means that we believe that God is who He says He is, and we believe that God will do what He says He will do. So we have these restrictions. We are restricted by substance. We are restricted by dimension. We are restricted by time. Now notice this, the, the natural universe compared to the supernatural universe, the realm of heaven, the place of God, if you will is represented by the white on your screen. And it extends, it's not bordered, it extends into infinity. So which one is larger, the natural or the supernatural? The supernatural. And notice that I didn't put any restrictions on the supernatural because apparently there isn't any. We know that there isn't a three-dimensional uh, restriction on the supernatural where Christ is concerned because we see him in the text walking through walls. We also know from because of prophetic insight that God is not restricted by time. And one of the mistakes that we bring to Scripture when we read it is that we think that God lives the same way that we do. We think that God has the same restrictions that we have. I, I remember that old and, and very... Uh, Irrelevant, circular reasoning argument against spirituality. Uh, how many angels can dance on the head of the pin? 
and stuff along those lines. The answer is when you're not restricted by matter, space, and time, what does it, what, what does it matter? Again, the person that built this computer isn't living in the computer. Why would we think that God is the same way with creation? But anyway, prophetic insight, same thing, just as a refresher for you. Um, when we try to look through eternity, we cannot see it. I believe as a Baptist that part of the reason we cannot remedy within our own minds the 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 tension between the sovereign will of God and the free agency of man is that we can only see things here in the present. We're only staring down at this one specific moment in time. But it was C.H. Spurgeon that actually said, when we try to argue the point back and forth with each other, what we're actually doing is try to reconcile two sides that are actually old friends and have been all along. But we can't see that because we can't see the scope of eternity. Spurgeon said, basically, it's like staring down at a, a, a railroad track. You can only see these two beams held apart from each other, never connecting. But it's only if you can lift your eyes up and see the road ahead of you through eternity that you realize that it's not two separate iron rods separated never to meet each other, but they're both part of the same road, the same pathway. But anyway... This is our constriction. We can only see the here and now. This is what John was before Christ said, come up hither. When he said, come up hither, he was then a, a mortal person who was exposed to eternity. And I believe that this is one of the reasons, on top of us having a, a really faulty, uh, well, incomplete view of the Old Testament, that we think that the book of Revelation is, is as confusing as it is. Because again, John is being exposed to something that no mortal person has ever been exposed to. Well, Zechariah, uh, let, me, let me restate that. My apologies. John is being exposed to something that is outside of his realm of comprehension. And he's now having to pin it down for us. Feverishly trying to get us to understand what he has just experienced. And he's trying his best to make it a way that is relatable to us. So anyway, talking about the testimony of John, what is this book? Is it symbolic? Is it allegorical? Is it just a story, a, a parable, a long parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning? Twice in this book, we hear the words, the voice tell us, the voice of Christ say, come and I will show you. Seventy times we hear John say, I looked, the senses of sight, I saw, I heard, I saw 42 times, I heard 23 times. He's very descriptive and he's insistent that these are not allegories, these are real experiences as God is unfolding this truth before his very eyes. Now some of, the, some of them are pictures that God is painting for him with a heavenly meaning. But again, this is prophetic insight. There is a bit of future casting to this as well. These are him living out these experiences. I looked, I saw, I heard. Anyway, moving into chapter 4. Go ahead and take out your copy of God's Word. And let's begin by taking a look at the way that John describes for us the throne room of the very universe. Chapter 4, verse 1. 
After this, referring to Jesus' writing of the letters to the seven churches, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Notice, I want you to underline that because we're going to come to that in a few sessions down the road. Whenever somebody talks about, when John describes a voice, he doesn't describe it as the small, still voice. He describes it as like a trumpet is blaring in his ear right next to him. I heard a voice speaking like a trumpet, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated upon it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, And on the throne sat twenty-four elders, dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their head. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. I want you to notice that in heaven, the praise and the worship of the living God never ceases. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. John is using very poetic language here to describe someone that he knows. It almost seems like he's guessing from the way that the text is rendered in English, but he's not guessing about who this is. He's building a case for the, in, in the minds of his readers. Who is seated on the throne? God, God the Father. The one who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. Now let's start by doing a little Word study. Thronos. Uh, translation throne or seat of power. And a lot of these uh, come into play in the pictures of the Word of God. The Messiah, for instance, at this point in time is seated on not on his throne. He is going to inherit his throne later on towards the end of this book. 
but he is right now seated upon the Father's throne at his right side. Psalms uh, 110 verse 1, Revelation 3.21, there is the throne of mercy that is talked about, the mercy seat. In Hebrews 4.16, there are some that actually link that with the mercy seat that uh, we think of as the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, but it actually is treated in Scripture as its own item. It simply rests on top of the reliquary that is the Ark of the Testimony. But Jesus' own throne that he will receive is also the throne of his, his ancestor, King David, as was res, uh, forecast by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9-7 and promised to his mother Mary by the angel Gabriel in Luke 1-32. The apostles were also said in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 6 to sit in judgment on thrones of their own, Judgment over, of all all things, the 12 tribes of Israel and the angels of heaven. That's interesting. In judgment, in this idiom, we can also infer means that they have power over. Not necessarily that that they um, are deciding innocence versus guilt, but they have authority themselves over them. Uh, 24 elders we see referenced as seated on their own thrones in Revelation, here in this, this chapter. And there also later on will be the great white throne judgment, which is reserved for the unbeliever. Also taking a look at the way that God has been described. Jewels in the Word of God have meaning. The word used for jasper, for instance, is linked is, is linked uh, to the tribe on the breastplate of the high priest, is linked to the tribe of Benjamin, the last tribe of Israel, the last son of Jacob. It comes, it, its substance is the same, but its color based on impurities can vary wildly. But the more common ways that you find Jasper presented is either got a, a purple or a bluish tinge. But there's also varieties that come as white or clear. Emeralds are generally known to be green. That also represents Levi on the breastplate. The Sardis stone or the carnelian as it was rendered in this translation, as, and we've, we've already done a word study on it, means red. Uh, also the Greek word that is being translated here as rainbow is more commonly in other sources. It's, it's iris which is like what you have on your eye, more commonly called. It is not rendered as such, but I think is a descriptor in other places for what we would call a halo rather than a rainbow. Not a semicircle, but a completed circle. So the green circle halos around the head of the one who is seated on the throne. And I want you to notice that uh, the Sardis stone is the representative of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. So you've got the firstborn here and you've got the lastborn here, meaning that God is being identified as the the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. The scriptures have purpose. Why 24? I've been trying, beating my head against the wall to figure this out. In, In King David's era, the Levites or the Levitical priesthood, were divided into 24 choruses. 
you could also infer that this is two completed fellowships of 12. This could also be a reference to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, when it met, would either meet with 23 or 71 elders, in some texts, 24 and others. What is unique about this situation is that everything on earth that God asks human beings to build is a through a mirror darkly, as Paul says, through the glass darkly, it's a dark reflection of what heaven is like. In the Holy of Holies, in the temple, the Holy of Holies is designed to be a three-dimensional representation of the throne room of God. The Ark of the Covenant playing the part of His footstool. The tapestry that is the temple curtain representing the angels that stand guard before His throne. So all of the things, the, the decoration that you hear when it comes to the construction of the temple or the tabernacle, all of them reflect the actual high throne room of God here on earth. So it makes sense also that where the Sanhedrin met in the temple precincts, that the elders picked by God in the afterlife would also surround His throne now. Incidentally, the word used for elders, presbyteros, some of us think of the Presbyterian churches, meaning the rule of the elder. Elder meaning uh, bishop is usually what is interchangeable with or, or, or pastor. Anyway, moving on. This is the way the Word of God describes the 24 elders, and we'll do a little bit more detail on who they are later on. But the characteristics, they are seated on thrones, they are dressed in white, meaning they have authority and they've also been found to be righteous before God. They are wearing crowns, meaning that through uh, the process of sanctification, they have been obedient to God in some way, shape, or form and were rewarded for them in the afterlife. There are songs, they, they later on, they sing the songs of the redeemed, meaning that they are not angels, because as we'll get to in Revelation 5, the angels cannot sing the song of the redeemed. So these have to be people. These have to be representatives of us from some point in our history. And they are called elders, but they are later called in 510 kings and priests. Now there are only two people listed in Scripture and one hinted at that come by that moniker. One of them was Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. The other one was Jesus Christ. Who is the third? Co-heirs with Christ. You are a peculiar pre people, a royal priesthood. You, the believer, bought by Christ, grafted onto the root of Jesse. Anyway, moving on. There's something else I want to say. Rewards in heaven, and we've talked about this kind of ad nauseum, but, but I want to mention it right now just to drive the point home to make sure that it's fresh in your mind. Your salvation is not your is not the, the finality of your rewards. Being a citizen of heaven, in fact, is what you were designed to do from the very beginning. It is only by the implication of sin that we're knocked out of it. When, when human beings were created, we were created for fellowship with God. We were not created to be judged as unworthy and then cast out. It's because we rebelled against God that sin entered into the world. So just getting into heaven, just getting into heaven, 
is the first step. The crowns are the reward. The crowns are what we as believers receive from the hands of Christ himself. After we present our lives to him as a sacrifice of praise. And when they're consumed on the altar of fire, whatever is left after the wood, hay, and stubble has gone, we will present to him as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Rewards in heaven are not based on just the fact that you're a believer. Rewards in heaven are based not on salvation, but how obedient you are in sanctification. Write that down. The rewards in heaven are not based on salvation, but how obedient you are to God and His call in your life in the process of sanctification. These are the crowns referenced in Scripture, although I'm sure that there are probably more. The crown of life is reserved for those who endure persecution and suffering for the kingdom of God. The crown of righteousness is reserved for those who long for His appearing, who live day by day in faithful anticipation of the coming of our Lord. The crown of glory is reserved for those who feed His flock, those who teach His word, those who disciple others. The crown incorruptible is reserved for those who exhibit lifelong faithfulness to Him, to His commands, and exhibit love for God in the way they live their lives. The crown of rejoicing is reserved for those who are soul winners, who bear the, who, who bear the gospel to those who have not yet heard it. Something else I want to, to go over you, with you really quickly, the image of the crystal sea. And we actually sing about this. The crystal sea before the throne room of God. And again, everything that God asks us to build is a reflection of a heavenly reality. So the darker image of this on the surface, on, on earth, has to do with the tabernacle and the temple. As I found in my references, the bronze laver in the tabernacle or the bronze sea for the temple of Solomon, which is placed before the temple in the holy place. Before someone could enter into the holy place and then the holy of holies, it is only by significant ceremonial preparation, sacrifice, and cleansing that they can enter into the holy place, much less the holy of holies. And part of that purification ritual is that they must be immersed in sacrificial, ceremonially purified through the washing of water. This is where baptism has its origin. So there was this giant pot of water that was before the temple so that the priests could purify themselves before entering it. And I want you to notice that there is, a, there is a very much an echo of the salvation experience in that. That we have to come to sacrifice first. That we are washed white as snow by Him. And then we have the right to go forward before the throne of grace to make our petitions known. But that's another sermon. Uh, there is a link to the purifying power of the Word of God as water in Ephesians chapter 5. But what I want you to think about is that in, in this instance when we're in heaven, we are no longer, if, if this is correct, and there is that, that uh, linkage between the Word of God and the washing of the, the soul, that we no longer, once we're in heaven, we no longer wash in the Word, but forever we stand on the Word.
I think that's a beautiful image. Now this is uh, from iStock. This is uh, a fictitious representation, not a fictitious rather, but this is a, a cobbled together image of the temple and of the high priest. I want you to notice the breastplate there studded with jewels, 12 of them on his chest, each individual jewel representing a different tribe of Israel. Again, the first and the last. Reuben as the first place, as, as the, the firstborn child of Israel, and Benjamin as the last. Benjamin also meaning son of my right hand. I want you to pay attention to that. The altar of sacrifice is to, the, um, to your right, to the priest's left, and the bronze sea, the, the giant uh, washing vat of water, is to your left. This is an aerial view of the temple. And you can see how you have to process, uh, to process from the point of forgiveness to the point of being declared righteous before God and then made and brought directly into the presence of God. Let's talk a little bit about what in some translations are called the four beasts. Now, there is another word in Greek for beasts, so I don't know why the King James in particular translated that. That is a mistranslation because the word used in the original text is zoe, which literally means living being or creature. For those of you that don't know, as rendered in English, the word creature literally means a living creation. That's where the word comes from. In terms of zoe, that's where we get the word zoo. So in Ezekiel, they're actually referred to as cherubim. Now there's a breakdown of cherubim that uh, is very long and extensive, uh, done, I think, through, through Strong's concordances, that actually links that particular word with another word from, um, from the Babylonian culture that uh, means messenger of God, but in, in that day, that time, way back in that era, um, referred to a different kind of being that was basically a winged ox. So when, when I'll explain in just a second. We're going to take a look at the way that Ezekiel describes the very same scene that John is talking about here. Because the prophet Ezekiel likewise had an experience with the very throne room of God. And this is how he describes it in chapter 10. Starting with verse 10, in appearance, and he's describing the four cherubim. In appearance, all four looked alike, like a wheel within a wheel. When they moved, they would go in and out of the four directions without pivoting as they moved. Again, we're talking about a difference in dimension here. But wherever the head faced, they would go in that direction without pivoting as they went. You see what I mean about holding off on describing, on painting scenes in heaven, they're not, even no matter how well, they pin it for you. I don't think that, it's, that it is possible to render an accurate image. Anyway, moving on. Their entire bodies, including their backs, hands, wings, and the wheels that the four of them had were full of eyes all around, exactly the way that, that John describes them. Incidentally, what, does, what do all of those eyes suggest as the ministry of these super angels? If you have a being that's covered with eyes, what's, what, is, what do you think that God thinks 
is important for that being to do. See. To see, to keep watch, to be what, um, to be all seeing, to be able to, to notice everything. So that's part of their ministry. Um, anyway, well, let's go on here. Their entire, th- verse 13. As I listened, the wheels were called the wheel work. Each one had four faces. One was the face of a cherub. Again, I think that's alluding to um, what John describes as an ox. The second, the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. The fourth, the face of an eagle. So he's describing pretty much the exact same scene as John was uh, exposed to when Jesus raised him in the spirit into the, the seventh heaven. Excuse me, the fourth heaven. Uh, moving on, the four beasts, the covered with eyes, signifying watchfulness. They had six wings. Wings have an interesting um, place in Scripture because they are not only used to fly or, or for the sake of being fast, but they're also mentioned as idioms of protection. How I wish to gather you under my wings. Jesus himself says of Jerusalem. Two sets of three. Uh, that can be one way of taking a look at it. Or, uh, excuse me, three sets of two, I should say. Three sets of two. Um, six signifying that they are lower than God. If you want to put it that way, again, this is, this is conjecture, but I want you to be aware of it. Ministry of speed and protection. Ministry also of watchfulness, of being able to, to see everything. But the faces are something that I want you to pay attention to. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And we're going to see that play out in just a second. Because again, everything that God asks us to build here is a darkened or a dimmed reflection of a heavenly reality. The faces of lion, ox, man, and eagle. Symbolically, lions represent royalty, usually the lion of the tribe of Judah being referred, uh, being a title of the king of kings and lord of lords. Judah also being the, uh, the royal, um, excuse me, Judah also being the royal tribe. Oxen usually being a sign of service, uh, the man meaning us or the image bearer of God. Eagle, which is often used as an idiom of divine protection, again, under the wings of eagle, or soaring, mounting on the air as the wings of eagles. Protection and strength. In fact, all of those could be strength, but those are in in particular. Now, there are several different ways, and I know this is going to be hard to see on some of your screens, but there's a lot to those four faces, what they represent. Because every, remember, back from the time that we studied the book of Numbers, every tribe of Israel had an ensign, had its own banner or symbol. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the ox was the ensign of Ephraim. The man or the figure of a man was the ensign of the tribe of Reuben. The eagle was the ensign of the tribe of Dan. Dan actually started out as a serpent, but... They caught on what that actually means symbolically, didn't like that, so they replaced it with an eagle attacking a serpent. Hence, protection again. But each of those tribes that were the larger tribes, when, when Israel was traveling, remember that even though there are 12 tribes, four of them 
three of them always, excuse me, yeah, three of them always traveled in one collective group. And the largest of the tribes that headed those collective groups were Judah, Ephraim, Reuben, and Dan. Now, the virtues, again, that I've got down there are what those different symbols or ensigns mean. But historically also, each of the different Gospels has been assigned a symbol along these lines. Matthew, uh, that was written to a Jewish audience that focuses on the teachings of the, of the Messiah being the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark, written mostly to the Gentiles, describing the works of divinity of Christ, uh, who is the suffering servant. Luke, who many, including myself, believe were, was written uh, to the Roman officials who were trying Paul as their court documents, Luke volume 1, Luke volume 2 being the book of Acts, who was talking about the experiences of Christ, what he went through and what the disciples after him went through. John, the eagle, who was written to the church to tell them about the deeper mysteries of the faith and focus on who Jesus was through his divinity. You also have different styles in the way that the books were written. Um, Matthew uh, tries to build a case that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, and he writes basically in an Old Testament a very uh, Moses-like style. Moses, when he talks about the law, he, he gives the law, and then in the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, book of Exodus, he pairs the law that he's talking about with an episode of the wilderness wanderings that explains why the law is the way that it is, how it's interpreted. Matthew basically does the same thing through fulfillment. This is the law. This is how Christ fulfilled the law. And these are the expectations of God that come out of it. Sermon on the Mount is a prime example. Mark uh, is more episodic. He is, is a very almost tract-like mentality. Get it into the hands of the, of, of the Gentiles so that they can know the power of Christ through the different segments of his life. Luke is a doctor who is writing effectively a report. So he describes the life of Christ as more of a narrative. And of course, John the mystic, as he is sometimes called, focuses on the divine attributes, the mystical, the unknowable, the, uh, the beauty that is the mystery of Christ. And they conclude in different ways too. Matthew concludes with the resurrection of Christ. Mark concludes with the ascension of Christ. Luke with the promise of the Holy Spirit, John, basically setting up his sequel in the book of Acts. And John, the same thing, talking about uh, Christ himself, talking about his own return in his sequel, which turns out to be the book of Revelation. So again, there's, there's all these linkages to these four animal faces. But I want you to notice one stark one. These angels are standing guard in front of the throne of God. Now this comes back from our Numbers uh, section 1. If you want to go back and rewatch that episode, I entreat you to. But remember, when Israel camped in the wilderness, they, they did so in a very defensive form, where you had, again, you had four um, groups of tribes, four groups of tribes that always traveled together under the banner of the largest tribe of the group, Judah, Reuben, 
the Levites marched by themselves. They were the keeper of the Ark of the Covenant. They were the priesthood. Ephraim and Dan. And when they would set up camp after their wanderings, when they would set up camp after their marching, they would do so in a series of columns where the tabernacle would be set up, uh, where the courtyard of the tabernacle would be established, where the tribe of Levi would camp around the tabernacle as a last resort. And then the rest of the tribes of Israel were commanded to camp basically in the same area, square footage, as the camp of Levi, only one going north, the one going south, the one going east, one going west. You couldn't camp northwest because it was neither north nor west. You couldn't camp southeast because it was neither south nor east. And we talked about this. When something in the Bible doesn't look like it makes sense, put Christ in the middle of it and see what happens. So this is the camp of Levi. It was central with the tabernacle being the middle. Now this is again a representative image of uh, one block of about uh, 2,200 people. The camp of Judah was east of the Ark of the Covenant. Consisted of 1,800, excuse me, 186,000. The camp of Dan, which formed the column to the north, uh, was uh, 157,600. Camp of Ephraim, 108,100. The camp of Reuben, 151,450. Now again, go ahead and, and try to put these four camps together in your mind. If the camp of Levi is what you base your camp on in blocks, and you are, you are area of Moses, Levitical mindset here, Go neither to the right nor to the left, but what I tell you, if you were to take an aerial snapshot of what the camp of Israel looked like, what would it, what would it look like? Numbers 22. This was when the prophet Balaam was being hired by Balak to curse Israel. And based on the book of Numbers, this is effectively the shape that he saw. What do you see? A cross, a Roman cross. But I want you to notice this. Surrounding the building that represents on earth the throne room of God, you have the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. Isn't that interesting? We also see that these four beings are engaged in unceasing worship. And so are the elders. According to scholar Bob Weber, worship as described in the Word of God is reflecting God's love back to Him in some way. And we as Christians do that by remembering God. Remembering who God is in terms of praise. Remembering who we are in relation to God, which is testimony.
remembering what God has done for us through thanksgiving. Worship in Anglo-Saxon can be stripped down to worth-ship, to ascribe value to something or someone. Great value above and beyond yourself. So in this throne room, in terms of praise, we hear holy, holy, holy. Why three holies? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, gold star. It's an allusion to the Trinity, to the spirits of God that are right there, to the Son that is seated right there, to the Father who is right there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come, the ever-existing one, the one from outside eternity past and who will be in eternity future for always, the one who is worthy to receive all praise, honor, and glory. Because he is the originator of everything. Who are we in relationship to him? The elders declare that we are his creation. We are his creatures. We are the living beings created by his hand. We are the ones who he has provided for. The providence of God. We are also the ones to whom he has shown tremendous mercy. The word of God given to us is a mercy. The prophets of old were a mercy. God calling to his creation. The grace of Christ shown on the cross was an act of tremendous, unfathomable mercy. What he has done for us. In this text, they are reflecting that he created all things. We can also praise God because he's redeemed the saints. And there's also this image where they worship by casting the very crowns that that he has given them back at his feet. My life was lived. All of my works were done. Everything that I am was done to the praise, the honor, and the glory of God. And I give it all to you, reserving nothing for myself. This is basically what the Apostle Paul wrote when in Romans 12 he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies, yourselves, everything that you are, as a what? As a living sacrifice. This is the living sacrifice played out before John. Holy and pleasing unto God. This is your true worship. So for next time. Any questions before we continue? All righty. I'm going to ask you to read a a section that might seem a bit odd to you. Read from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 32, 6 through 27. And I want you to pay careful attention to the scroll. Pay careful attention to the scroll that's in that story. I want you to also read chapter 5. And I want you to, to, in your journals, note what you think about the scroll in Revelation chapter 5. We'll go into a bit more detail with that next Wednesday, God willing. So, read the section of Jeremiah before you you read Revelation. 
pay particular attention to what's going on. Then read Revelation chapter 5. Journal and discuss in your groups. Please make sure that you are calling on your groups, calling regularly, if for no other reason. Yes, I want you to open the Word of God together, to break the bread of life together, and to share with each other what the Spirit has touched on your heart. That is vitally important. But I also want you to get back in the habit of seeing each other in fellowship in, this, in small groups. Because fellowship, as we, as we know, is vitally important. So, if there's nothing else, then let's dismiss. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the majesty and the glory of your word. May our hearts, hands, and minds be open to receiving it. May we take what we learn here. May we integrate it into our lives. May we use it to bring glory to your name and to better reflect you before others. Through the power of your Spirit, help us to this task. Help us to be more and more conformed to the image of your Son, in whose all-sufficient ministry, whose, whose all-glorious name we now pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.